Heavenly Father, we do thank you that the room is, as you are so good to do, Father, it has been filled with men and women who have come to hear your word, who in these last days are uh, mindful of the fact that so many others have uh, turned away from the truth that you've given us and have uh, sought after teaching that would uh, entertain or tickle the ears. Father, you've warned us that would happen, and it is happening. And, and yet, Father, we are, uh, we are mindful in this room of how important it is to hear the hard truth of the word, the message that is filled with grace and mercy, but also the demands that holiness requires. And uh, we know, Father, that you've given us your word so that we may understand these things and be responsive to them. Thank you, Father, for the instruction that only you can provide through your spirit. And tonight, Father, in your word, give me the words that you would have me speak by your spirit and uh, give those who hear, Father, a confidence that they hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are in Acts 16. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 16, 16, 16. Just to put you back in the moment in verse 16, we, we step back into a moment where you have Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who's obviously there now writing these events, together. Paul having just confronted a slave girl who is indwelled by a demon. And I've actually backed this up a few verses from where we left off last week so that we can come back in at a better moment right at the point where we hear about this slave girl. And then, of course, we'll move forward from there into what follows. So let's just remember the last three verses from from last week, 16 through 18. I'll read those here now. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Well, now, last week when we looked at these verses, you remember we focused on why Paul tolerated the girl's outbursts at first, and then, uh, after a while, seemed to change his mind, get annoyed at the girl, and then run the demon out of her. And we concluded that at some point, the woman's yelling had stopped being an advantage to Paul's ministry, in the sense that what she was saying was true, and the fact that it was true would have been helpful to Paul if he's trying to gain an audience for the gospel. But after a while it changed, it became less of a help and more of a hindrance. And the way it became a hindrance was in the way it distracted from the message. At some point, the crowds are self-sustaining. At some point, the message has critical mass. And the Spirit is at work through the Word of God. And in that context, once you've reached that point, she's not only annoying in the simple sense that anyone who yells long enough makes you annoyed. But ask any first grade teacher, ask uh, any parent of a toddler. But... In the sense of how it impacts the message, it became a hindrance in that it was a competing message. It becomes almost a demonic marketing effort, which only complicates, in the minds of those who receive the message, it only complicates the question of, is this from God or is this from the same source that the woman is drawing power from? Is it connected to her fortune telling in some way? It becomes complicated. Paul doesn't want the truth of his word, of God's word that he delivers to compete with the sensational proclamations or these sideshows. And nor would he have wanted the woman's demonic history as a fortune teller to become too closely associated with what he's preaching. So it's to his benefit at some point 
to say enough is enough and cast the woman out. So he acts to rescue her, delivering her from her predicament. But that's not the end of the affair. We'll go forward from there now in new material for the night. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. We'll pause just a moment now to look at what's developing here. This story that we're in the middle of now is actually part of a much larger narrative that Luke is just beginning. It will go all the way into chapter 19 and actually into chapter 20. And the basic theme that Luke is developing here is Paul preaching, the Greeks believing, and the Jews persecuting. Paul preaching, the Greeks believing, but the Jews persecuting. And here you see the beginnings or the seeds of that pattern. And here's what I mean by that. First, Paul clearly is preaching. That part's self-evident. But in this case, his preaching includes this, this unique healing moment of taking the demon out of the girl, which then upsets the owners of this girl, the masters of this girl. And we understand why. The text says they saw their hope of profit gone. It's easy to surmise what that means. The woman in her abilities is given by demonic powers. Her ability to do fortune telling had turned into an opportunity for them to make money by offering to give people their fortunes, probably for a fee. And so you can see how that works. Now that the girl had lost the demonic power, she lost her ability to help them in their business and that angered them. So from that encounter, from that situation, comes an accusation out of these men, which begins a very interesting pattern. This pattern I keep talking about that starts here and goes into the next several chapters. The pattern is easy enough to understand. The girl having her demon removed no longer speaks prophetically. And that now triggers the men to be angry. So they make a false accusation. They make spurious charges up to retaliate. And that charge is they're Jews. At the core of the charge, it's anti-Semitic. And we'll talk more in a minute about how that starts a cycle which ultimately arrives at the Jews themselves persecuting Paul and the gospel. But before we do that, we know God has the power to direct demons. They're created beings. They're, they're within his power like anything else in his creation. And obviously he does so here. Paul, in his own power, didn't cast out anybody, anybody's demon. And his words, by their own power, would have been incapable of doing that as well. In other words, it isn't magic. It's not his incantation. It's not like he knew just the right words and the demon realm was required to observe his words. Self-evidently, what Paul did was put into practice, into words, what he must have felt the Spirit giving him, what he must have felt the Spirit directing, which would have been in keeping with God's own intentions. God was intent on casting out the demon. God was at work in the moment, communicating to Paul through the Spirit, this is my will. Paul acting in that moment through the Spirit to speak what he spoke, God bringing it all together as he pushes the demon out, as he commands the demon out. Based on Paul's actions alone, based on what Paul does in response to the Spirit and God's work through that, the spirit realm is moved against its own will, against its own desires. As the demons left, so do the woman's powers, which tells you that what she was doing all along was demonically derived. This event is a powerful reminder of at least two things. And I mention these 
in passing, I guess, but only because I think it's easy to skip this and not consider them. Let's take a moment to do that. First, the demon realm is real. It's easy in this day and age, I think, as cynical as we are and as, as sophisticated as we are, culturally, that's our feeling anyway, that's how we see ourselves, to imagine all of this stuff to be ancient, to be things of the past. Only in the Bible days did people build boats to survive giant floods. Only in the Bible days did people rise from the dead. And only in Bible days were there people running around foaming at the mouth because of demons. And as a result, we take all of the story and the power associated with this moment and relegate it to history. It's not present tense. It's not contemporary. But the truth is the demonic realm never stopped being real just because the book is old or because we were born thousands of years after the event. They are, they are eternal no differently than any of us. And therefore, they are as real today as this pulpit or my body or your body. The fact that they're not seen in the physical is merely a consequence of, the, of their own reality being spiritual. They are spirit beings. They're not physical. They're not corporal beings. They're spiritual beings. So they are not discernible unless and until they act in the corporal realm, unless they take control of a body or manifest themselves in some manner such that they are visible to something that is corporal. It's action they must take if they are to be revealed. Otherwise, they remain undiscernible in our normal sense, in the way that our five senses can tell us about the world around us. We don't see demons. We can't see them apart from those examples I gave. We don't normally encounter them in the way the Bible may present them. But let me assure you, they are around you every day. I have had at least two experiences I can think of specifically in which I know, without a shadow of a doubt, I've encountered demonically possessed people. And I'm not just talking about people I don't like. I'm talking about... Although I wouldn't hold out, I wouldn't necessarily rule that out, but people whose behavior, their appearance, their words, and something else you can't even put into words, something spiritual, uh, brings you to a knowledge of them that is, that is altogether different. And you realize in the moment you're, you're in the presence of, of evil and that they are not themselves. They are in, under a different influence. And if any of you have shared in that kind of an experience, then you know what I'm talking about. It, it to use the modern term, it freaks you out. It's, it's, it's weird, to say the least. And, and it is intimidating. And yet, knowing the power of the Spirit, the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world, understanding we have a different uh, perspective on these things than the unbeliever does, uh, nonetheless, you have to respect the power of the realm. You have to understand that there is true power in the demonic realm and that we are not equal to them in our own natural power. Fortunately, we don't rest in our own power in those encounters, but the point remains they are real. They operate through the physical realm using the bodies of other people when they wish. By the way, I should clarify, they use the bodies of those who have empty bodies. Another way to say it is they live in the hotels that have vacancies. Jesus himself mentions this, that the world of unbelievers form unwitting hosts to the work of the demonic realm when he speaks in parable form about this kind of circumstance in Matthew 12, 1243, uh, Jesus says this, he says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus uses that in application to the state of Israel as a nation. But the truth of it is only a possible. It's only possible to use it 
in application to Israel if the essential truth of it stands on its own. In other words, this must be the truth of how demons work with individual bodies if it's going to have any parabolic application to Israel. Otherwise, it's meaningless. And so the truth of it at its simplest level is that those who are without the Spirit of God indwelling them are like hotels with a big flashing vacancy sign. And as Jesus applies this example, he says, if somebody were to have that demon cast out, their body left open and clean and swept, but yet unoccupied, he says, they're just a willing host for the next time the demon wants to come back and maybe next time with more of his friends. The ultimate solution, in other words, Jesus is, is indi- he's implying the ultimate solution is the problem is not getting rid of him. The problem is putting something in his place to keep him out the next time. The spirit of God, in other words, the Holy Spirit, as he would indwell us now by faith. That is the ultimate defense against the demonic realm because our God is a jealous God. He's not going to share you with anyone. Once you have the Holy Spirit in there, you've got an occupied sign and the Holy Spirit is going to keep that from happening to you. That does not mean the demonic realm cannot influence us from the outside, whether by trials and tests and temptations, whether by uh, taking action through the lives of other people who are indwelt. We will see consequential impact from that. But we ourselves are off limits. And so when we encounter people who seem to access supernatural power, then you have to be careful about assuming that's a power from God because it very well may be a power from the enemy instead. We discern the difference based on their fruit and on whether they align with Scripture and what they do or say or propose to do. The second thing we learn, just finishing this for a moment, the second thing we learn from this experience with the girl is the God we serve can direct the demonic realm as easily as he directs anything else in creation. I mean, all Paul had to do was say, Spirit, go away. That's it. Well, that's self-evidently the showing of God's power through that moment. But it begs a question. If they don't hold equal power with him, then if they make a mark in our lives, indirectly or otherwise, then it is merely because God permitted it. The story of Job is obviously the classic example of that happening in somebody's life. But when God is ready to dismiss them, equally true, they will obey without exception. So to the extent we feel some kind of demonic presence or exposure to demonic presence in our life, the question is not, why can't God deal with this? The question is, why is God making me deal with this? And that becomes a fundamental question of, of, that can lead us to something we learn, something we can now make good use out of, as opposed to complaining about it. I remember one, after one night teaching at Castle Hills First Baptist Church in a series I did on sovereignty of God, which I felt very much a, a series that God was working through through the Spirit to do something in, in my life if no one else's. And we were having an end-of-the-series dinner with a bunch of people who had attended. We had a large table at a restaurant. And toward the end of the meal, this young teenager, who I'd noticed sitting at another table for most of our meal, got up, came down, and sat right next to me at my table, at our table, which is odd enough, right? And starts acting and talking in weird ways. And nobody could figure out why she sat down with us. Once she left, kind of after a while of talking, asking strange questions, not really interacting in a normal way, she just gets up and leaves. And everyone looked around and said, well, that was kind of weird. Who who knew her? And nobody knew her. And so then it became really weird. We were all wondering, why did she sit at our table? Well, then I looked up a few minutes later, and she's standing near the cashier in this restaurant waiting for me to catch her eye. From that point, I couldn't hear her, but I could see her well enough I could read her lips. She made sure I could see what she was saying. She said something to the effect of, we know who you are, and we know what you're doing, or something to that effect. And that was the last I ever saw of her. But the look in her eye, I'll never forget it. 
And I'm convinced, and that was one encounter where this, the demonic realm was working through her to send a message that they didn't like what I was saying. I took that as great encouragement. <laughs> but I didn't feel like it in the moment. I didn't fear her as a person. She was just a teenage girl, you know. I mean, she might have hurt me, I guess. I don't know. But, but this is the reality of the Christian walk. I think it's interesting how few people in their walk, in my experience, can relate similar encounters which means one of two things is true. Either they're already such a minimal threat to the enemy's cause that it's not worth his trouble, which is a problem in itself, or they're not recognizing the signs of the demonic realm in their own life. They're attributing it to natural causes, which is not the worst thing in the world. That's not like, I'm not saying that's a horrible thing not to recognize the enemy at work, but I do think it leaves us at a disadvantage. If, we don't, if we're not discerning of what the spirit realm does, then I think as Paul says, you know, we don't war against flesh and blood. If you understand where the real war is, you're in a better position to react properly in the face of those kinds of threats or temptations, to pray differently, to live differently, to be emboldened when you might have otherwise been intimidated. I I think that's the difference for me, is understanding how to see those moments properly changes your reaction to them. You've been awoken to the truth of things that the rest of the world is dead to and ignorant of, and they can't see you the way you can see them. And that's the difference, the perceptual perceptual difference that comes with faith. So, uh, in this case, the departure of the demon rendered the girl useless, so they attacked Paul and Silas. And back to what I said a minute ago, let's look at how this seeds a whole set of things that start here and go for several chapters. And you'll notice it in verse 20 and 21. They note that Paul and Silas are Jews. By the way, the reason why it's Paul and Silas and not Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke Timothy and Luke are are most likely Greek. We know Timothy had a Greek father. That's probably how he's being perceived. Luke is debated, but I believe he was uh, not a Jew. So that would mean that they weren't being brought into this for that very reason. That would confirm the anti-Semitic source of the conflict. Their charge is these gentlemen are teaching in such a way that they're throwing the city into confusion. Teaching things that are unlawful for Romans to do. Now, we get the sense from the text that these are trumped up accusations. But there may be a kernel of truth. You know, the best lie in the world has a kernel of truth in the center of it, right? If the charges have any merit at all, it would be because it was illegal under Roman law for someone to persuade a Roman to change their religious practice away from emperor worship. So, you know, in a sense, their charge could be true in that regard, but I don't think that's their motive. Honestly, I don't think they really care that someone's being persuaded to stop uh, worshiping the emperor. What they care about is they lost their income. That becomes a convenient excuse now to bring the charge, and anti-Semitism is at the core. So the claim is, this is a Jewish problem. Hear that in their statement. Listen to it from that point of view. By pointedly noting Paul's Jewishness, the men are appealing to an anti-Semitic point of view. They are claiming that this is a problem of more than just the message or even the messenger. This is a Jewish problem. And they say this is a Jewish problem to stir that crowd in the city up against the Jews as a whole. Now, this accusation is so important now in the story that Luke's telling and where it goes next. It goes a long way to explaining the persecution that will now arrive out of the Jews. And here's why these are connected. Here's how you get from this moment to persecution from the Jews. First, remember that these are Hellenistic Jews, not Palestinian Jews. They're in the diaspora, which means, number one, Jews would not have likely objected to Paul's message all that much. They weren't terribly orthodox. They were fairly liberal. They were fairly open to different doctrines and views. They had already begun to incorporate a lot of the pagan views into their own practice of Judaism. 
So another kind of flavor of Judaism, nah, not worth getting upset over. Not like the Palestinian Jews, not like the Jews in Jerusalem. And if you want proof of that, just think about what Paul's encountered so far as he's moved through the diaspora. He's seen very little Jewish persecution to this point. He, some Jews have received the message. Most have ignored it. A few Jews have been upset at times. We saw some of that in his first missionary journey. But generally, there was no organized opposition and very little real opposition along the road. Now we have the seeds, though, for organized Jewish persecution. Because what, the Jewish religion was the only religion in the Roman Empire that was exempt from the requirement to worship the emperor. Everywhere else Rome went throughout the world, as they conquered civilization after civilization, one of the things they required was that that local population they conquered alter their religious practice from whatever it had been to worship of the emperor. The only exception they'd ever made in their entire history was with the Jewish people because the Romans had discovered the Jews were largely unrulable if they were prevented from worshiping according to their law. They were so zealous they would rather die fighting the Romans than change their religion. Whereas most cultures, you know, I already got 50 gods. I'll take a 51st if you want me to, as it keeps me alive. I don't care that much, right? There was an easy transition into Roman religious practice. So they had a compromise with the Jews to keep the peace. Rome made this exception. You can keep worshiping under your law. You just got to obey our laws on top of it all. That was a delicate balance, as you can probably imagine. Over the course of the decades since Rome came in and, and took over Palestine, you have the Romans who didn't want their generosity to become excuse for the Jews to disrupt the peace and then mock their authority. So there was a little bit of concern on their side. And on the other hand, you got the Jewish zealots and um, uh, Jewish Pharisees that had the role, the role of ruling these people who didn't want their own people to ruin a good thing, to become troublemakers, antagonize the Roman authorities and risk that special status. So this is exactly what happens, by the way, anytime a religious institution marries itself to the government. Now the interests of that, of that union trump the purity of doctrine and religious practice. We'll make compromises as much as necessary to hold on to a status that serves the purposes of the leadership of those in authority. So it created this very interesting bind between the Jewish authorities and Rome. But there is a spiritual dimension here. The enemy is warring against God's people from the beginning. It's still going on today. And through these backdoor methods, he continues to find ways to undermine Jewish practice. So that's the backdrop. So with that cultural backdrop, jump now back into the story. You have Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas preaching a new religious outlook. We understand how Christianity takes what God gave through the law and through the prophets and fulfills it and extends it forward into God's plan. Not to replace Israel, but to take the message of Israel's promises and deliver them to a Gentile audience for a time. That's Paul and Silas's message. And yet, to untrained ears, and I'm meaning here unbelievers, to untrained ears, it would just seem to be another version of Judaism. A sect, a small segment of Judaism. Especially when it's being preached by two Jews. Paul and Silas. So when the conflict of Paul and Silas occurs with the fortune teller and those fortune teller masters get upset at the loss of their income, they strike back against all Jews. And as a result, they're putting at risk this special relationship that the Jews have with the Roman authorities. From the point of view of the Pharisees or other Jewish leaders, Paul and Silas 
are upsetting an apple cart, they don't want to see upset. That changes their perspective from before where they might have thought, oh, it's just another message from Jews, zealous Jews, who cares? Now it becomes a political threat. And so as this materializes, it turns into a Jewish persecution against Paul and and Silas so as to silence them and put to end any potential for them to disrupt their special relationship with Rome. That's where the seed is being planted here. Now, the men claim the Jews are using their special dispensation to disrupt Roman peace. Of course, that wasn't true, but because it was believed, it had two immediate effects. First, it gave the Gentile authorities permission to act upon their existing anti-Semitic biases and attack Paul and Silas. We're going to see that here next. More importantly, it strikes fear into the hearts of the Jewish leaders, as I've already mentioned. So the immediate effect now we're going to look at, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So each Roman colony city is ruled by a pair of magistrates or city leaders. So you have a pair of leaders per city set up by the Romans. These leaders now respond. They respond to the crowd's concerns about about what they hear happening with Paul and Silas. What they do, though, is illegal by Roman law. Under Roman law, it was illegal for these magistrates to do what they just did. They, they order an illegal punishment for Roman citizens. This is without due process. They had a rule of law, and men were punished severely for violating that rule of law. In this case, as Roman citizens, Paul and Silas were not permitted to be beaten, certainly. This is exactly like the Rodney King incident, basically. The people here doing the beating, by the way, would have been lictors, and there's no pun intended, they would have been lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S, but that means police. So the city magistrates called the police in, they gave the guys a good beating, and then threw them into jail. No more could that happen then than it could happen today, under law. They need to be arrested, they need to be placed in jail, they need to be sent before a judge or a, or, or a procurator or a magistrate, they need to be given due process to defend themselves as Roman citizens, they could appeal to Caesar, as you'll see Paul do later. All of that should have happened. None of that happened here. It's interesting that Paul never reveals his citizenship here. We know he's able to do that. He did it at a later point in the story when he tells them later that he's a citizen. It's interesting that he's holding that knowledge back. They're stripped first by their clothes. Notice the magistrates themselves took part in that. They stripped the clothes off Paul and Silas. And what they meant by stripping here is they take the outer cloak, leaving basically underwear on underneath. That was an act of shame. For Jews, particularly Jewish men, they would have been very shamed by that. In fact, Paul mentions being shamed in Philippi, which is where this takes place, in his first letter to the Thessalonians. uh, When he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, he says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul later, by the way, heads to Thessalonica after he leaves Philippi. That's the next place he goes. But the magistrates themselves participate in this. They were struck by many blows. Under Jewish law, the limit was 40 minus 1. 39 blows. That's it. Most you could give anybody was 39, according to the Jewish law. Roman law let the judge set the limit. But in this case, there's no judge. There's been no trial. There's been no due process. So this is just pure mob violence. So how long did they beat him? We don't know. Couldn't have been good. After the beating, they're placed in prison under the guard of a jailer. 
the jailer here is ordered to hold them securely. Now, here's an interesting twist to the story. In fact, it becomes the central theme or the central detail to the story as it finishes the chapter. Under Roman law, if a jailer allowed any inmate under his guard to escape, then he was going to be subjected to the same penalty that that inmate would have been subjected to for their crime. Well, in many cases, the crime would have had a penalty of death. I mean, remember, the Roman way of doing justice was pretty harsh. So in almost every case, if someone left the jail without your permission, you were going to be under a death penalty as a jailer. That was almost certain. We've already seen that earlier in the book of Acts. Remember, when Peter leaves the jail by the act of that angel, his jailer, we were told, was led to his death for the crime of letting Peter out. So this jailer has been told, don't let him out. So to be sure that they didn't escape, he puts them in the inner prison. Now, what you have to imagine is a small building in which there are rooms on the outside of the building that comprise the normal jail cells. They have windows, perhaps small ones, to let some light in. But at the very center of this building, you have a room, because it's in the center, that is literally without any light or air coming in whatsoever. When the door is closed, except for maybe a little air under the door, if it's close, if, if there's a gap at all, it is a completely dark box. That's where they've been placed. No light, no air, nothing at the center of this building. And to top it all off, they're put in stocks. And there's several ways Roman prisons did this, but based on the way it's described here, it was just their feet. So you've seen this maybe in Williamsburg, or you've seen this in other places where they have relic of days have gone by, where they have the wooden stocks you put your feet through and they lock your feet in there. But keep in mind, these guys have just gone through a very painful beating. They can't stand. They've got to sit on their rears or lie on their backs, which is probably where they've been beaten. They have no way to relieve them the pressure. I mean, they're, they're, they're locked in position. This is a tremendously uncomfortable situation. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. The men endure this situation for some few hours, we're told, and then the Lord shakes things up, so to speak. Before we look at the earthquake, we can't help but marvel here at how Paul and Silas are spending their time, though, can we? And that's often what we think most about. People tell this story or tell this account out of Scripture, and they usually focus on this point. Remembering that Paul's in Philippi, and we know the letter that he wrote to the Philippians later, we call it the letter of joy, because of the theme of that letter is, is built on being content under any circumstances, finding joy under any circumstances, always looking forward to your eternal reward, not focused on your here and now. And you know he knew, they knew his story. He's writing about, this kind of a perspective, having lived the moment that he lived in the jail in Philippi. Very interesting connection. They're praying and they're singing in a very loud way so that all those in the prison can hear. Now, isn't it interesting that their position in the inner room, in the center of this building, puts them in the perfect place so that what they say and do is heard equally by everyone else in the building. They're on center stage as God has planned it. Now, these are not the kind of sounds other prisoners would have expected to hear coming from the center room in that prison. No one wanted to be in the center room. Going into the center room was a bad thing. In fact, when they were probably being led into that room, you can bet the other prisoners are all sitting in their cells thinking, gosh, I'm glad I'm not those guys. They're going to be miserable. Instead, soon after they enter the room, a church service breaks out in the middle of their, of their little room. And soon what these men hear changes their life and the life of one other man. 
A strong, sudden earthquake strikes the prison. Now, by the nature of the circumstances and the timing of it and all of that follows from it, it's clear enough that this event is supernatural in origin and in its purpose, though I want to note the text never says that. You're left to conclude that based on the circumstances. I find that to be very interesting and notable in this sense. Your life is filled with moments that are timed by God, purposed by God, lead to certain outcomes of his desire in our life. And though they're not as dramatic as this in all cases, though maybe a few have been, maybe we've had circumstances that are dramatic. Nonetheless, they're all equally from God. The difference between those who understand God at work in their life and those who don't, it's discernment, not a difference driven by God's presence. He's not unequally present among his people. But when I look around my life and I see things happen in my life, I can choose to decide, am I watching God at work? And if I am, let me try to make sense of it from that perspective. Or I can look at my circumstances and say, you know, I'm having a bad day or my life's in the dumps or why am I so unlucky? It's all a matter of whether or not I'm coming to the text of my life and looking at it from that point of view. We naturally come to the Bible and say, oh, God made an earthquake because it's in the Bible. But if I had written a letter to someone and said I was in Haiti and I was doing this and this and then an earthquake happened and this, unless you're thinking about things in a biblically founded way, you might be tempted to think what horrible luck your, your vacation in Haiti was ruined. Whatever your circumstances. I mean, the point is the same. Knowing that it's always God at work in those moments, the question just has to come to your lips. What is he doing here? What's the purpose in this? The difference between someone who seems to rise above their circumstances and the one who, for lack of a better term, wallows in it, is perspective. And I don't mean in the Vincent Peale sense of, you know, turn lemons to lemonade. It's in the biblical sense of God brings trials for a reason. Tests are here for my own benefit, spiritual development and so on. There's something in this to his glory and I'm supposed to figure that out. Or miss it and then just be miserable because I couldn't give it, um, uh, you know, because I didn't have time or interest in understanding God's word. Problem is, you miss it once, he'll give you a second chance, trust me. The event itself is entirely natural, meaning earthquakes are natural events, but its purpose and its timing is by God's desire and according to his power. It's such a strong earthquake, it shakes the whole structure, and as the text gives us already, it forces all the doors open. Verse 26. Everyone's chains were unfastened. So what you have to imagine here is doors set ajar by the force of the earthquake so that they're off their hinges or the door jams have broken and the door is swung open in some way. The chains are loose. And now understand, this is still within a natural context. The way they were typically chained was around their arms or legs, there was a chain that was fastened. And then that chain was attached to some kind of eye bolt that's set into the rock or the concrete of the wall. If the wall has been broken up by the force of the earthquake, then that chain is loosened from the wall. That's the most likely interpretation in, the, in light of the fact that this is being described in natural terms. There's no angel. There's, there's nothing supernaturally evident in the text. So the best way to conclude how these circumstances happened is to see it naturally. So God at work, but yet natural circumstances. So you've got a bunch of guys now who are freed from the wall and with doors open in a Roman prison. And under any other circumstances, every prisoner would have run out of that prison while they had the chance. Unless, of course, they perceived that the source of the earthquake was supernatural and was somehow connected to or attributed to the worship activities of those two strange guys in the center of the prison. I mean, think about the coincidence of it. Two guys singing and praising God in the middle of this prison, which is in itself unusual. And while they're doing that, this huge earthquake, and gee, look, every single one of us has had our door open and our chains knocked off the wall. 
What are the odds? I mean, you don't have to be a genius to say to yourself, this isn't just normal. Something's different about this. In which case, what would they do? What's the logical thing to do under those circumstances? In light of those circumstances, I think it turns it around. You, you go to those guys, you try to figure out what kind of power do they have? Who are these people? And in a pagan culture, in a culture in which gods are perceived to walk among men routinely, Zeus, Apollos, now maybe they're in the presence of gods. I'm not suggesting they know who the true God is yet. All I surmise is they're attracted to know more about these two guys who seem to have the power to cause earthquakes. So here you have men attracted to the kind of power that might accomplish some wonders and therefore unable to leave or unwilling to leave. Look in verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer, he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, let's understand what he's really saying and what's going on here, because it's not immediate. The term save triggers a lot of thinking in our Western mind and in our modern culture. That's not altogether proper here. You have to think a little bit about what's going on at the earthquake. The jailer awakes. That's sensible. We would expect that. We note something, though, in that fact alone. He was not awake, which would imply he was not hearing Paul and Silas in their activities, not like the rest of the jail would have heard it. He heard nothing until the earthquake. So he surveys the damage. He learns that uh, all the doors are opened. He notices there's no chains attached to the wall. Remember, the prison is designed so that you walk in and you're immediately in view of the outer rooms. The inner room has no windows, no way to know what's inside that room. All he sees is a room full of empty cells or a building full of empty cells. That's his first sight. Well, of course he assumes that. Once the doors are open, why would they stick around? And at that point, he's seen enough to know his own life is going to be taken because at least some of those men were probably under a death sentence. So he's getting ready to kill himself, which would have been preferable to the kind of treatment he was likely to receive at the hands of the Romans. So the jailer decides a self-inflicted wound is better. Somehow, Paul hears this going on. Paul and all the other jailed men are sitting in that inner room. Now, the inner room has no lights, so they're sitting in complete darkness together in this room. It's kind of an odd scene. When you think about it, somehow Paul recognizes that outside you have a jailer. Now, what I'm assuming is happening is the jailer is not just being quiet about it. He's probably narrating his, his own circumstances like some people do when they get in a, in a situation that's stressful. And Paul recognizes here's an opportunity. So Paul knows something the jailer doesn't know. The cells were empty, but the prisoners hadn't left the prison. And they moved deeper, in fact, into the prison, into the inner room with Paul and Silas. Having been a captive audience to all of what Paul and Silas did in their prayer time and their singing time, they are presumably drawn to the gospel at this point, or at the very least to Paul and Silas as men. What a great example, by the way, of Romans 8.28. What a perfect example. God turns all things to good for those who love him. What a great example of that. Paul calls the jailer over. Now, you know, there's about 20 things in Scripture, 20 moments in Scripture I wish I had a picture of. This is one of them, actually. I want to see this guy's face when he opens the door and asks for a light. And it's a dark room, right? And he's got this light. And it's almost like an Indiana Jones movie. He's just moving the light across the faces of all these men. They're all here. They're all here in this room. Why did you come into this room of all places? Why would you even leave your cell? Why would you even be in this building? I mean, what is on his, his face had to have this stunned look of, I can't make sense of this in the moment. What does this mean? 
they've, uh, uh, to me, this would have been just one of those things I would have loved to have seen in person. They've been set free in Moss in a way that would have made it difficult for anyone to find them. They had very little re- reason to think they'd be recaptured, but they're sitting with Paul. Now, remember something here about Roman prisons. Romans did not incarcerate people for very long. They didn't have a penal system. You know, if you violated Roman law in such a way that you deserved punishment, they didn't send you up the, up the creek and feed you for 20 years and give you a comfy bed. That didn't make sense to them. That, that seemed like a vacation. So what they did instead was they killed you. Or they beat you and released you. But there was no in-between. So these men had two prospects facing them. No matter what their crime, they were either... Well, I guess you had three if you count exoneration. They were either going to be set free, they were going to be beaten in some severe way, or they are going to be killed. There's, there's no prospect for a better outcome. And unless they're convinced they're innocent and going to be found innocent, then any reason to get out of that prison was a good reason. And yet, they're sitting... In the jail, they're essentially committing suicide, at least some of them are, by their willingness to remain behind. So what does the jailer think when he sees this scene? I I just don't think there's a word for it. In fact, the scene is so striking, so unexpected, that he falls down before Paul and Silas and asks probably the most important question anyone can ask. He says, how can I be saved? But what does he mean and what is his motivation to do that? Consider that had Paul and Silas left the prison then the rest of the prisoners would certainly have followed them. True enough? I mean, after all, they followed them into the inner room. I'm sure if they had walked out, they'd been just as happy to follow them if they left the building, right? And the jailer, I'm giving the guy some credit. And here's what I mean by that. If the jailer has surmised what's happened, he knows that the, the, the earthquakes happen. And he knows the jail is open, so these guys could have left. And then he walks to an inner room where he finds all of these men with Paul and Silas. Now, that door had to have been open for them to get in. So... The men in the prison had to go open the door. And instead of opening the door to let these guys out, they opened the door to let themselves in. That immediately tells you something. What it tells you is Paul and Silas are important. Something about these guys has drawn the rest of the prison into their room against all odds. Are they supernatural? Are they gods? Are they uh, powerful men who created the earthquake? There's clearly something going on with these two guys. And That is immediately apparent to the jailer in such a way that he falls to their feet, not to the other prisoners. He sees these two guys as the key, and so he falls to their feet. Furthermore, Paul was the one who called on him to come see, remember? And Paul said, we are all here. All of that suggests that Paul and Silas are the ringleaders for something that he isn't necessarily clear about. But yet, though they could have left, they remain And with them, all the prisoners, and to the jailer, he's struck by another thought as soon as he realizes what's happening. And the thought he realizes is, these guys just saved my life. Collectively, and particularly Paul and Silas, by their decision to remain here, and then, of course, by that decision, they kept all the prisoners with them, you've just saved my life. You've knowingly, consciously decided to take a self-sacrificial act, which will allow me to survive. And I think that's what put him on his knees. He realizes that not only has Paul and Silas, have they determined to remain in the prison and save the jailer's life, they then did the next thing as well. They called out to him in a moment when he was about to kill himself, and they stopped him. I mean, think it through for a moment. They've done everything they had to do to save his life, including intervening in the last minute when he was about to kill himself because he didn't know what was going on. He has to have put two and two together in the moment. He has to have thought all of that out and realized, 
why are you doing this? Why would you stay in the prison? Why would you care about me so much that you don't want me to kill myself? This is the love that the jailer never expected to see from those he persecuted. And as he contemplates it all, that's where I believe the Spirit was moving him to ask that fundamental question. How can I be saved? Now, we don't know if he meant it in the soteriological sense. How how can I be saved from my sin? Though he might have meant it that way. That might have been the proof of the Spirit's movement. He also may have meant, how can I be saved from the punishment of my superiors over all that's happened in this jail? But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because no matter what he meant, Paul gave him the right answer. Sometimes that's the best technique, by the way, in evangelistic ministry. If somebody says, I need you to help me, I'm dying and I have very little to eat. Well, come on in, friend, let me tell you how we can help you with that problem. You don't always have to have them asking the right question before you give them the right answer. And I think maybe that's the best way to reconcile the text at this moment. Paul doesn't care what he means. Paul just gives him what he needs to know. And then in verse 31, they said... Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them, meaning the jailer took them, that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is quite a night. First, Paul gives the jailer the gospel in simple terms. Now, he adds something interesting that I know some people wonder about when they see. He says, he will be saved and your household will be saved. Now, there's certainly a way you can take that and go off the reservation doctrinally and come up with some really odd interpretations. It's fair, though, to ask, what is Paul implying? Will one man's salvation save his entire family? Is that what Paul's implying? Well, that's what I mean by going off the reservation. If you come to that conclusion, the only way you get there is by ignoring the testimony of Scripture apart from this verse. Right? You have to take it in isolation to come to that view. We know this is not the general testimony of Scripture. And so the meaning must be elsewhere in context here. The likely explanation is Paul had foreknowledge or insight as given by the Spirit to conclude that God intended to work through this man and into the rest of his family through this experience. Paul knew what God was prepared to do. He wasn't proclaiming it in such a way that he expected God to do what he wanted. He was proclaiming it prophetically, understanding what God already intended to do. He was essentially speaking prophetically about God's plan for this family. By the way... We cannot ourselves give equal assurance to other people concerning their families unless we, like Paul, have received a similar kind of insight. So we can't generalize it. Then later we hear Paul and Silas speak the word of God in conjunction with the call to believe. And this is just as Paul himself wrote later, that faith comes by hearing, but hearing by the word of Christ. The man believes, and then as a result, notice the first thing he does, he changes from being their jailer to their nurse. He washes their wounds as a response. And then they baptize him. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster? A man who is inflicting their wounds through the stocks and through his own behavior as jailer is now changed by words, by the words of the gospel, into the man who feels compassion for those same wounds and is now treating them. In a span of hours, he goes from the man inflicting, at least to some degree, to the man repairing. I mean, that's a change you don't see apart from the work of the Spirit. Can you imagine what it would best have been like to receive the gospel from the very men that you had just earlier been persecuting? How how much would you have felt beholden to them 
in light of how you had been treating them. And isn't the love of God amazingly powerful here in the way it can change hearts and then change men to lead this new life in just hours? Verse 35. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. Now, notice not when the day like daylight came, but when I'm sorry, not like when a future day came, but when daylight came the next day, when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Peter said to them, they have, I'm sorry, Paul, sorry. Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they saying, send us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. I love Paul, by the way. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. (laughs) They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and, and departed. This is the night after the rejoicing, Paul and Silas, the rest of the prisoners, they all returned to their cells. This means that the prisoners, and let's presume for a moment that some or or many of them had a true conversion through that experience, but whoever, however many, they voluntarily went back to their cells. For the sake of the jailer, we must assume, among other reasons, perhaps, which would have meant some of them would have been led to their deaths for their willingness to remain in a prison. And yet God asked them to remain in the prison, to go to their deaths, so that the jailer could be brought to the point of his own salvation. Just as Paul himself later goes to his death, Christians are often required, and not just in the early church, but throughout the history of the church, to go to death for the sake of the spread of the gospel. It's a fundamental tenet of faith that persecution will follow those who believe to varying degrees, but sometimes to the ultimate degree. And here are men who, in the span of a few hours, come to know the Lord through Paul and Silas, some of them at least we have to assume, and then in the next moment realize, well, now the first call of your newfound walk in Christ is to go back in that cell and prepare for death. (laughs) Much like a thief on a cross, we remember, right? We may be asked to do the same thing one day for the glory of God, but that's in his hands. At this point, at the next day, it's determined Paul and Silas are to be set free. Magistrates obviously just wanted to teach them a lesson, so they send the police to set them free. Uh, These are the same men who probably beat them. And then the jailer tells Paul he's free, thinking, hey, good news. And then Paul drops the news that he's a Roman citizen. And he indignantly says, what are you going to do, beat me and imprison me unjustly and then just expect me to walk away secretly and and let you off the hook? Paul's quite bold here, obviously, but he was within his rights. He was totally within his rights. A crime had been committed against him and he demanded justice. So when the policemen hear this, they know that's a problem. They run back to the magistrates. They tell them they know how much they're in trouble. Now the situation is completely opposite. It's a complete reversal of the circumstances. They have Paul now in charge of them, so to speak. They go asking Paul for forgiveness and for mercy because they would get a serious penalty. So they now ask Paul, please leave the city. What they're really saying is, please don't tell anyone that we've done this to you. And you're the evidence I've done it. So would you please leave before anybody finds out? Paul himself doesn't seem very interested in in leaving. I think ultimately it plays to his advantage to put them in a position of dependence on him and and, and vulnerability. But sometimes it's best to hold your cards and play them at the right moment, right? 
I want to show you how this chapter comes together because it's an interesting thing. Luke does this, by the way, a lot in his gospel. If you study the Luke gospel with me, then you know how he does this so often. He selectively attends to certain facts in the life of a person. He doesn't narrate every day of their life, right? It's not a diary. So the question then is, why does he choose certain things to highlight in the text? Here you have, in the course of this chapter, a Jewish businesswoman, Lydia, a woman who deals with fine, expensive fabrics, a business owner, someone who is probably of fairly high means, a wealthy woman, presumably. Her name begins the chapter, and you interestingly note she ends the chapter. Then you go from her in this story of the chapter to a slave girl, possessed by a demon, exploited by unscrupulous men. Probably the lowest station in Roman society, a slave girl. So you have a woman at the very top of the economic ladder. You have a a girl that represents the very bottom of the economic ladder in that society. And finally, in between, you have a representative of the Roman state, a decidedly Greek middle-class member of society. Paul enters Europe for the first time, and in his first exposure to Europe, he brings the gospel to all levels of society, to all three. He exposes the gospel. But in each case, through a means that is clearly supernatural in the way God is bringing those three people into his life and dealing with them in the way the the gospel is, is being delivered. And in the course of those exposures, he sows the seeds for Jewish descent that continue to follow him. But you see in the way Luke has selectively picked out these stories, a great example of how... In the way we saw earlier, Paul reaching different walks of life, different cultures. Now he's reaching all levels of society. We know he's going to preach before the the, the highest levels of Roman authority, and he's going to be accepted by the the poorest of the poor. This is Luke's attempt to reflect just how high, wide, broadly God is sending the gospel out and how it's being received. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that no matter what station in life we have been given, that you saw fit at a point in time to deliver the truth of the gospel to us. As you say through your word, we were those who were not mighty, not noble-minded, and and not men and women of privilege. But in many ways, Father, we were the weak and those who were not noble. And, and Father, that is why you, you chose to bring the gospel to us, because it glorifies your name all the more. And we praise you and thank you, Father, and, and our... Uh, And desiring, Father, to to serve you all the more for knowing the grace that you've given us. And we ask, Father, that the study we're embarked upon here in in Acts will continue, that you bring us back in a couple weeks and let us uh, uh, move steadily through it. I pray, Father, that what we've learned so far would, would be useful in the way you call us to serve you in many different ways. And that we would be a light in this world. And uh, so bring us back, Father, according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.